Well, as I begin my message this morning, I want to state as clearly as possible a few truths about the gospel, or really a particular aspect of the gospel. As you know, the gospel refers to the good news of Jesus Christ. The gospel can be helpfully outlined by using a simple four-point outline that goes like this. God, man, Christ response. God, man, Christ response. Just as a simple outline of the gospel. First, God. God is perfect. He's holy. He's righteous. He's just. Man, by contrast, is sinful. He's rebellious. He's unrighteous. He loves evil. And because of God's justice and holiness, and because of man's rebellion against God, God must punish all sin. God must punish man for his sin. God is just, and he has told us that he will punish all sin. And this creates a problem. And Christ becomes the solution to that problem. Jesus Christ came into the world to live a perfect life and died in our place. He suffered the wrath of God for us. God's just nature required that someone be punished for sin. And Jesus Christ took that place for us. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. What we've earned for our sin is death. And Jesus tasted that death for us. He stepped in and took our place, suffering the wrath of God for us. So 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So God, man, Christ, and then finally, response. The Scriptures teach that we must do something with this saving message. And this, this point of the response is what I'd like to focus on this morning as we begin. This is where I'd like us, this is where I would like to state clearly what I believe the scriptures teach. The scriptures teach that man is saved apart from any work of his own. Ephesians 2.8.9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourself. It is a free gift of God. So salvation is a free gift that is received by faith. And saving faith consists of two interrelated, interconnected, internal convictions. Let me say that again. If saving faith consists of two interrelated, interconnected, internal convictions, and those are faith and repentance. Faith and repentance. Faith is the God-enabled ability to trust God for salvation, to trust Jesus for salvation. And repentance is the God-enabled change of heart towards sin. Repentance is a change of heart that leads to a change in life. In repentance, a man turns from his sin and turns to obedience to Christ. Turning from sin, turning to Christ. So both repentance and faith are internal dispositions, internal convictions of the heart. And both are inseparable from each other. You cannot have one without the other. Where there is true saving faith, there will be repentance. There have been called the two sides of the same coin. True saving faith is always wedded to repentance. Both faith and repentance are the necessary response to the gospel. That is how we respond. That's that fourth point. It's repentance and belief. So man must respond to the good news, that saving message, by placing their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and turning from their sin and allegiance to Christ. This, the very first recorded words of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark are this, Repent and believe the Gospel. 
Repent and believe. Additionally, belief and repentance are not a one-time activity. There's something that characterizes our life. True faith and true repentance last throughout the lifetime of a believer. God ensures that this is the case. True faith always endures because God grants faith in the first place. He's the one who gives it. Gives it. And true repentance can continues in the life of of the believer, continuing to manifest itself in obedience to the commands of Christ. That's how repentance manifests. Therefore, a sign of a true Christian is a continuing lifelong repentance. A true Christian will never stop bearing the fruit of repentance. Therefore, let me state clearly, true saving faith and repentance are free gifts of God. It is all grace and we can do nothing to earn it. Good works or righteous deeds or works of the law cannot save and do not contribute to our salvation even in the slightest degree. However, as a manifestation of repentance, the believer will do good works. Therefore, when the gospel is truly received, it necessarily changes a person's life. When the gospel is believed and received, it changes a person's life. I could sum up all this by saying that repentance is integral to the life of a believer. And without repentance, no one can be saved. And ongoing repentance is a mark of someone who is saved. This truth of the gospel was really under under attack for much of the 20th 20th century, culminating in what is now referred to as the Lordship Salvation Controversy. Maybe you're familiar with this. This controversy raged the hottest in the 70s and 80s and early 90s. The the debate somewhat centered around the following question. In order to be a Christian, must Jesus be the Lord of your life? In order to be a Christian, must He be Lord? In other words, can you accept Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord? Advocates for this non-lordship position, or what has been become known as the free grace position, argue that all one needs in order to be saved is simple faith, and a faith that doesn't include repentance. Repentance was considered to be a second optional step that a Christian may do at some point in his life. Therefore, they argued that a person could be saved for many years and never make Jesus the Lord of their life. He was their Savior and not their Lord. This understanding came upon American evangelicalism from many sources, but maybe the most influential at the time was Dallas Theological Seminary. Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, at that day, by many accounts, was the most influential seminary in America. They were really on the cutting edge of this theology. theology. Professors like Zane Hodges and Charles Ryrie were key advocators of this position. And every... Every year, hundreds of seminary graduates were filling churches with this theology and this influential teaching. The leading edge of the other side of the controversy was championed by two men on the either side of our country. One in Orlando, Florida, the late R.C. Sproul, and the other in Los Angeles, California, Pastor John MacArthur. As good friends, through the preaching and writing, these two men dismantled this non-lordship position although this debate still rages in some parts of our country and some churches today, in large part this debate came to an end in the mid-90s. You see, the decisive blow to this free grace or non-lordship position was dealt by John MacArthur in 1988 
when he wrote a groundbreaking book called The Gospel According to Jesus. In this book, MacArthur went passage by passage through the New Testament, teaching and expositing what Jesus himself said about salvation. What does Jesus say about salvation? What is the gospel according to Jesus? And the the result of that book was irrefutable. No one from the non-lordship position has ever been able to substantially refute the clear teaching of that book. And I personally encountered the book when it had, had come out in its third edition. It was in 2008 when I first read it. At the time, I was deeply involved with a ministry that championed the free grace position. And I trust that it was just the resource that the Lord knew I needed for that time in my life. At that time, it was such an encouragement to my soul uh, to read the clear teaching of true saving faith and repentance and what it means to truly be saved. If you have not read that book ever, I would hardly commend it to you. And when I traveled to L.A. just a couple months ago for my graduation, my parents and I had the opportunity to have a short conversation with Pastor John MacArthur that was really quite precious. We thanked him for his ministry and for his faithful teaching of God's Word. And I told him that I was incredibly blessed years ago when I read that book, The Gospel According to Jesus, and how much I was benefited by that book. And I was really not surprised at all when he responded to me when he said, of all my books, that one is the most important. That one is foundational. And in preparing this week's sermon, my mind was drawn to this book just again and again. And I pulled it off my shelf to thumb through its pages once again. And I came across the following quote that I I thought was quite applicable to today's sermon. In that book, in 1988, MacArthur wrote, Faith obeys. Unbelief rebels. The direction of one's life should reveal whether that person is a believer or an unbeliever. There is no middle ground. This is not to deny the obvious truth that Christians can and do fall into sin. But even in the case of a sinning believer, the Spirit will operate by producing conviction, hatred for sin, and some kind of desire for obedience. The idea that a true believer can be can continue in unbroken disobedience from the moment of conversion without ever producing any righteous fruit whatsoever is foreign to Scripture. Merely knowing and affirming some facts of the gospel apart from obedience to the truth is not believing in a biblical sense. Those who cling to the memory of a one-time decision of faith but lack any evidence of the outworking of faith, had better heed the clear and solemn warning of Scripture. He who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. End quote. It's to this subject and to this very verse that we turn this morning. Last week in our study through John chapter 3, we considered verses 31 through 36. And this morning we'll be focusing on Upon verse 36 alone, verse 36, I'd invite you to turn there in your Bible with me, if you're not already there, to John chapter 3, and we'll look at verse 31 through 36. It's ultimately so important that you see what God has written in His Word, so much better that you hear God's Word in in the Scriptures than my own words. So follow along with me as we read verse 31 through 36. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard of that he testifies and no one receives his testimony. 
He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. The subject of this final section of the third chapter of the Gospel of John is Christ's authority. That's the subject of this section. In verse 31, Christ is above all earthly authorities because his authority is sourced in heaven. God has given to Christ all authority in heaven and on earth. The substance of Christ's authority is found in verse 32. It is an authority consisting of what Christ has seen and heard. What he has seen and heard as an eternal member of the Trinity, Christ, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have always existed in a triune nature together. And Christ, the God the Son, has always been a common beholder of the absolute truths of the universe. And despite this being the case, the majority of people choose to reject Christ. So much so that John says here, no one receives his testimony. No one receives his testimony. However, in the very next verse, verse 33, it's clear that there are some who receive the testimony. That's, John is making a generalization when he says no one receives his testimony. But there are some who receive it, and when they do so, they confirm that God's word is true and that Jesus' words are God's very words. When Jesus sp- speaks, it's absolute truth. This is because, as is the emphasis of verse 34, God has given the Holy Spirit to Christ in an unmeasured fashion. Jesus is not like the prophets of old who had a portion of the Spirit to serve a particular purpose. Jesus, by contrast, always speaks exactly what the Holy Spirit wills, the exact Word of God. His words are absolutely true. Verse 35 provides the reason that God has invested all authority into Christ's hands. It is because, that the, it is because of this, the Father loves the Son. Scripture says that He's loved the Son since the, before the foundation of the world. God the Father has always had a love for the Son. And God's love for the Son is also a result of the Son's perfect submission and obedience to the Father. God loves the Son. And for this reason, He's given all things into His hands. And this brings us to verse 36, which is really the pinnacle of these six verses and the pinnacle of the third chapter of John. It's, it's really the climax of this great chapter. As you recall, it was my desire to take us through this third chapter, third chapter of John's Gospel so that we could be further established in the truth of soteriology or the truth of the doctrine of salvation. That is, what must a man do in order to be saved? It's my belief that correctly understanding the Gospel is paramount to the Christian life. And if you get the Gospel wrong, that means if you get the saving message of Jesus Christ wrong, it doesn't matter if you get everything else right. That you understand and believe the gospel is really my greatest pastoral concern for you. I want you to know this truth. I want you to know the gospel. The ramifications for a lack of certainty or lack of clarity on this particular point is really eternally catastrophic. Without a correct understanding of the gospel, no matter what we accomplish in life as individuals or as a church, it's all for naught. If after all, after a life of church activity, if we have not believed the gospel accurately and the wrath of God still abides, 
still abides upon us, what is the purpose? We need to be right on this topic. And it's my belief that there may be no other single chapter of the Bible that clearly explains some of the truths of salvation. And we have been walking through those truths together. And this morning we encounter the climax of that chapter in verse 36. In this verse, we find great insight into the nature of saving faith. And that insight specifically is that Christ must be received as Savior and Lord, to to put it in the terms of the Lordship controversy. This verse contains really the consequence of Christ's authority, the consequence of his authority. Last week we saw the source and substance and responses to Christ's authority and also the basis of his authority and finally the reason behind Christ's authority. But here we have the consequence of Christ's authority. And by consequence, I mean the result or the outcome of Christ's authority when it's either received and believed or when it's rejected and disobeyed. What is the consequence of receiving and believing Christ's testimony? And what is the consequence of rejecting and disobeying Christ's authority? In verse 35, we see that all things have been given into Christ's hands. All things have been given into his And apparently in verse 36, that includes eternal life and eternal death, because that's what comes very next. So eternal life is the consequence or outcome of believing and receiving Jesus. And this is my first point. The consequence of Christ's authority received and believed, or believed and received. Look at John, look at John 3.36. Look how it begins. He who believes the Son has eternal life. He who believes the Son has eternal life. This is the simple truth that Jesus explained to Nicodemus back in verses 14 and 15. Everyone who believes the Son, everyone who receives the Son's testimony has or possesses eternal life. Notice here just the present tense. Those who believe at present have eternal life. Eternal life is the possession of the believer today. So what is eternal life? What is eternal life? Familiar term in the church, but what is it? I might describe it as the life that endures forever in the presence of God. Eternal life begins at the new birth when a Christian becomes a Christian, at conversion. It begins and it continues for an eternal, infinite duration. It's an eternal life. The believer's experience of this eternal life may change through different eschatological seasons. The believer's eternal life has begun. It begun at conversion. It will be enjoyed differently during the seven-year marriage supper of the Lamb. It will be enjoyed differently during the 1,000-year millennial reign of Christ upon the earth. And it will likely be qualitatively different in ways during the eternal state when the new heavens and the new earth exist and we live there. And likely it will change through these seasons, but it begins here and now. We have eternal life if we believe And those who are believing today possess it. We own it. And this is the same emphasis repeated by Jesus in John 5.24. He said there, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death and into life. So eternal life begins now, but it will be fully consummated in the future. And to catch a glimpse of the future of the one who believes, I'd like you to turn with me to the end to the culmination of our Bibles, to Revelation chapter 21. I'd like you to see this. Revelation 21, the second to last chapter of our Bibles, just to see a picture of eternal life in the future. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 21. 
Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. Verse 2, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among His people, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first, the first things have passed away. And He who sits on the throne says, Behold, I'm making all things new. And He said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. Then He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the springs of water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. This is eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth. Notice the characteristics of those who will not be there, just as a side note in verse 8. But for the cowardly, the unbelieving, and the abominable, and murderers, and immoral persons, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Look also at Revelation 22 for another picture of eternal life. Look at 22, verse 1. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb, and in the middle of its street on either side of the river of the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His bondservants will serve Him. That's us. Verse 4, And we will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night, for they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. So this is really the consummation of eternal life. No more curse, no more pain, no more dying, no more sorrow. Just the healing of the nations. Life lived in the light of the Lord God. There will be no more need for the sun to shine in the sky. Just forever basking in the marvelous light of God the Son. So this is how we can picture eternal life. To see a final description of eternal life with me as we make our way back to John chapter 3. Turn to John chapter 17. John chapter C, which is a short depiction of eternal life that's worth us noting. John chapter 17, verse 3. It says this, This is eternal life. There it is. This is eternal life, that you may that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. This is our Lord Jesus praying. He's praying to God the Father, and He's praying in a way that's instructive. He's really teaching and catechizing His men in a way by praying this way. He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So we could say eternal life consists of knowing God and knowing Jesus. It's an eternal life of knowing God, an eternal life of relationship with God. Eternal life is an eternity of knowing God and knowing Jesus Christ. That's what we'll do for all eternity. We'll know Him. We'll be in relationship with Him. And so next we ask, well, who is the one who possesses eternal life? If you want to make your way back to 336, 
Who is the one who possesses eternal life? Well, obviously, it's the believing one. It's the believing one who possesses eternal life. It's the one who has come to see that he or she is a sinner. It's the one who's come to see that God is good and that he's a a just judge and he must punish sin. And therefore, our only hope of salvation is having a perfect sacrifice. And the only perfect sacrifice that exists is Jesus Christ. And so it's the one who believes that message, who is trusted in Jesus Christ as his only means of salvation. He is the one who has or possesses eternal life. And the only alternative to this is the wrath of God. The wrath of God is the only alternative to eternal life. And this is the consequence of Christ's authority rejected and disobeyed. This is the second point. Christ's authority rejected and disobeyed. So look there at verse 36 again. Just look at it with your eyes. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life. But the one who does not obey the Son will not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. The inevitable inevitable alternative to believing in the Son and receiving eternal life is disobeying the Son and being precluded from eternal life. The text says they will not see life, meaning they will not experience it. They will not enjoy eternal life. They will not make it there. They will not see it. And we ask, well, why? Well, obviously that's because they've not believed in the Son. But notice here that that's not what John says. John doesn't say that they do not believe the Son. John could have said the same verb twice. He could have contrasted the one who believes in God and believes in Jesus and the one who does not believe in Jesus. But that's not what he does. He makes a contrast, but he chooses a different word. He chooses a verb meaning to disobey. He contrasts the one who believes with its opposite, the one who disobeys. Not to be overly overly technical here, but the word is apatheo in the Greek, and it simply means to disobey or to be disobedient. And in the New Testament, this word is used when it always refers to a disobedience and strictly a disobedience towards God. In 1 Peter 2.8, Peter uses this word to refer to those who are appointed for doom. He says this there. He refers to them as being disobedient to the word. He uses it again in chapter 4, verse 7. He says this, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it be, begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God, who do not obey the gospel? Here is obviously referring to those who are outside the church who do not obey the gospel, which could be said in a different way. It could be said as those who do not believe the gospel. But Peter here specifically refers to unbelievers as those who do not obey the gospel. And it is clear in this passage in 1 Peter 4, 7 and in John 3, 36 that belief and obedience are synonymous. Therefore, some Bible interpreters argue that in John 3, 36, the meaning of this word apatheo is to disbelieve or to reject Christ or even and even sometimes translated as such. For example, the NIV translates John 3, 36 as whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life. They translate it as the word reject. And the idea of reject is similar to disobedience, but the word does not mean reject. It means to disobey. And even worse, in my opinion, is the New King James Version, which is regularly a good translation, but there the translators rendered this verse as follows. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life. Notice what they did there. 
Although there's two entirely different Greek words in the original, they've translated it with one and the same English word, the word believe. And frankly, they should not have done that. The word is disobey. John contrasts belief and disobedience. And here it's a present tense, continuous disobedience. It describes a person who's never surrendered their life to Christ. They do not take orders from Christ. They do not submit their lives to Christ. They do not obey the Son. The Apostle Paul used this word to describe Israel as habitually failing to obey the Lord. In Romans 10.21, Paul wrote, as far, But as for Israel, God says, All day long I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient people. God patiently waited over and over again for Israel to obey, but they would not obey. All day long, meaning again and again, they chose to disobey Him. And so when considering this word disobedience, it's important to see that it's referring to a, a continuous, an ongoing disobedience. It's a habitual disobedience. It's not referring to a mere momentary act of defiance, but a defiance that characterizes one's life. Some understand this word to mean disobedience, but they apply it only to a single command of Jesus, the single command of believing. So Jesus regularly commands us to believe, And so some reckon that disobedience here in John 3.36 is simply a disobedience to believe. And certainly refusing to believe is disobedience, but that does not capture the scope of this word in its context. John is referring to a habitual pattern of disobeying Christ. Disobeying Christ on many fronts. And John is informing us that one cannot be a believer in Christ and be committed to disobeying the Lord. Again, let me just state clearly, a person is saved by trusting in Christ for salvation. And sinners are saved through faith alone. But as they say, saving faith is never alone. Saving faith is never alone. It always comes with obedience. It always comes wedded to repentance. And repentance is always manifested in obedience to Christ. It's this reason, it's for this reason that Jesus can say in John 14:15, If you love me, you'll obey my commandments. If you love me, you'll obey my commandments. If you love me, meaning if you are a Christian, if you are a Christ follower, then you will obey. Which means that the inverse is also true. If you do not obey the commands of Christ, then that would mean that you are not truly a Christian. Therefore, Jesus can say in Luke 6.44, you will know them by their fruits. You will know a true Christian by the fruit of their lives. It's the fruit of a person's righteous life that gives evidence that they're truly a child of God. And I believe this is such an important point. Such an important point. I believe we must sound the truth of this, this truth again and again like a trumpet. We must know this truth front and back. I believe that in, American, in our American evangelical culture, we have been so inundated with a weak, half-true gospel that many people are now under a delusion They've been inoculated with just enough spiritual truths or half-truths that they now assume they've received eternal life. They have a sort of fire assurance. This is maybe given to them at the hands of some well-meaning parent or a Sunday school teacher or a youth pastor or whoever, but now they assume that they're saved even when their life completely disregards the commands of Christ. They do not obey Christ. And then we are shocked when we see utter capitulation in the American culture on nearly every social front. The truth is that we have long lost the gospel. The truth is that the call to become a Christian is a call to come and die. 
I mean, let me tell you Jesus' words again. Luke 9.23 If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily. Meaning you must, be, you must be willing to follow me to the point of execution. Surrender your life. He says, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. The one who loses his life, surrenders his life to Christ, takes his orders from Christ, he is the one who will save it. So yes, we want everyone to come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We want as many people to be saved as possible. But it will not work for us to change the gospel, to make it easier for people to get saved. It simply will not work, and instead we'll just make false converts. So we must know and share the full gospel. We must tell and proclaim and urge and plead with people to repent of their sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But we also must warn them to count the cost. We must tell them, if you become a Christian, count the cost. You're surrendering your life to Christ. He is now your king. Count the cost. And this means that you will obey the Son. Again, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life. Paul uses this word disobey in, a similar, in another similar cross-reference. Cross Turn with me to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. Here Paul explains that everyone, both Jews and Greeks, will be held accountable to a moral standard. See these words with me in Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. He says, Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who persevere in doing good for glory and honor and immortality, and eternal life, but to those who are selfishly ambitious, ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also to the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. No partiality with God. This means that God does not judge man based upon his skin color or his ethnicity. As sadly, this is becoming more and more common in our nation today. God does not operate that way. He doesn't judge with any partiality. Here, he just judges them based upon their life. He judges them according to their deeds. And in verse 7, it says, To those who persevere in doing good, seek for glory and honor and immortality, and they will receive eternal life. But in verse 8, to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, they will inherit wrath and indignation. Now, now notice our word in verse 8, the same word used in John 3.36. Those who do not obey the truth, but rather obey unrighteousness. To these people, wrath and indignation are coming. Wrath and indignation. Again, this is the exact same outcome found in John 3.36. If you would make your way back there with me to John chapter 3.36, we see this truth. This is the same outcome, the exact same outcome. This is the consequence of Christ's authority rejected and disobeyed. It is the wrath of God. He who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. The wrath of God. We ask, well, what, what is the wrath of God? 
What is the wrath of God? If I try to put it in a definition, I would say the wrath of God is this. It's God's intense hatred for sin that provokes him to righteous retribution. It's God's feeling of strong displeasure or anger that is expressed in judgment. And as we have seen in John chapter 3, God is a God of love. But He's also a God of wrath. He's an emotionally complex being. He's a, we think about it, in the same moment He can express His love towards sinners, a la John 3, 30, 36. And He also can express His wrath towards sinners, a la John 3, 36. And this is the way God has always been. He's always been a God of love and a God of wrath simultaneously. There's no such thing as a God of wrath in the Old Testament and then a God of love in the New Testament. Such a thought would be nonsense, really. God is always the same, yesterday, today, and forever. However, the Old Testament does give us some amazing, striking depictions of God's wrath. Just listen to Psalm 7 to me. Look at Psalm 7 says this, God is a righteous judge and a judge who has indignation every day. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. And he's also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. That's God in his anger. Or consider God's wrath in Isaiah 30, beginning in verse 27. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from from a remote place. Burning is his anger and dense is his smoke. His lips are filled with indignation and his tongue is like a consuming fire. His breath is like an overflowing torrent which reaches to the neck to, na- to shake the nations back and forth in a sieve and to put in the jaws of the peoples the bridle which leads to ruin. God's wrath here is like a volcanic eruption of anger at the unrighteous. It's a, it's a flood of consuming fire poured, ab- poured on unbelievers. And this is, the, this is the destiny of all those who disobey the Son. But notice here in John 3.36 that this is no mere, mere future destiny. It's not a future destiny. The wrath of God abides on them, the text says. It, re, it remains on them. In essence, the, the wrath of God is already looming over their heads. It's like an ominous dark cloud of judgment that's just shadowing the sinner. You see, as sinners, we enter the world under a curse. The wrath of God is already directed upon us when we're coming due to the fall of man. This is why Ephesians 2, 3 says that we are children of wrath when we come into the world. We're not children of God when we come into the world. We're children of wrath. So the unbeliever is fully already under the wrath of God. It's like God has a tracking missile upon him. God's wrath is just waiting to be fully consummated. And those who do not believe and disobey God disobey the gospel, disobey the truth, are under the wrath of God. In a short time, when they pass from this earth, this wrath will overtake them in a full consummation. And so their only hope is that they repent and they believe the gospel, that they throw themselves upon Christ, the only means of salvation. And so having considered this verse, let us just pull back for a moment and now just reflect upon this truth. And when I personally think about the wrath of God, and really as I prepare to just teach and and really preach about the wrath of God, I find it altogether impossible to capture the severity of this warning. I find it just impossible to say these words with enough emotion, enough gravity, enough passion to seem to give justice 
to the wrath of God that is coming. As I even try to ponder and consider the wrath of God, it seems like I'm forever coming up short in my mind. My thoughts are just seemingly too simple, they're too trite, and I'm, my mind is just too easily distracted to truly think upon the wrath of God. That an eternity of God's wrath is pending for those who reject Christ as Savior and Lord is really just simply unfathomable. I mean, in a sense, I believe it, of course I believe this, but I don't think my life demonstrates this truth like it should. If the, if the truth of God's pending wrath upon the unbeliever is true, which of course it is, then I believe there should be at least three natural consequences. If we understand and believe the wrath of God is coming upon unbelievers, there should be at least three natural consequences. So when considering the wrath of God, I believe it sh- first it should provoke us to praise and worship. Understanding the wrath of God should provoke us to praise because why? God is a perfect being. If he did not hate sin and hate sin with this intensity, then it would necessarily mean that he either simply tolerates sin or that he even somehow delights in sin, which could not be. As such, God would be a morally flawed being, which he is not. This is because it's right to hate sin. It's, it's right to hate sin. It's actually a virtue to hate sin. And God possesses this virtue in full, and therefore we praise him for it because he's perfect. He's perfect in his wrath. He absolutely hates sin. And second, the wrath of God should provoke us to fearless evangelism. Fearless evangelism. How can we not share Christ with our fellow friends and family knowing that the wrath of God looms over their heads? Should we not be zealous evangelists? Should we all not be pleading with people to turn to Christ? Be saved, urging them to come to faith and repentance. I think it should. And finally, understanding the wrath of God should fill us with gratitude. Gratitude and amazement considering that the Lord Jesus Christ bore the wrath of God for us. Gratitude. Oh, thank you, Lord Jesus Christ. You died in my place. How great that it wasn't me suffering the wrath of God for all eternity. How great it is for you that you're not suffering the wrath of God for all eternity. He died the death we deserve. He suffered the wrath that we accrued. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was slain for us. How thankful we should be. And I guess all I have left is just to, for those of you who have not trusted in Christ and you know that you are not a Christian, let me just plead with you. What are you waiting for? You must trust in Christ. You must believe in Him. The wrath of God abides upon those who do not believe and do not obey the Son. It is real It will come. So you must believe. You must believe. You must repent. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this truth. On the one hand, it's an awful truth that the wrath of God will be poured out, but it's also a necessary truth. And our hearts are burdened for those who don't know Christ. Our hearts are burdened for those who do not submit their lives to Christ and who do not obey Him. Lord, we see in your word that it's true. Christ must be our Lord He is our Savior, but He must be our Lord too. We must be fully surrendered to Him. We must take up our cross and follow Him daily. So I just pray for any here who do not know Christ that they would surrender their lives today. And I also pray for us as a church. Would we know the truths of the Gospel, even the difficult ones, even the ones the the world and worldly Christians don't like to talk about? Would we know them because they're necessary for the true sharing of the Gospel? And so Lord, we pray You'd give us opportunity to share Christ. 
I pray, Lord, that you'd help us, even as I think of our little ones. Would we bring them up in the truth? Would they understand, even from a young age, that the, the wrath of God is a coming upon all those who disobey the Son, who do not believe and do not trust Christ? Help us to tell them the gospel again and again and again. And may we pray and long for the new birth. We pray for that new birth that Jesus explained to Nicodemus. I pray that would come upon our little ones. And we, we see the fruit of repentance in their life and would we glorify you. So help us to teach them the word of God again and again and everyone who does not know Christ until Christ is formed in them. And so we just pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.